chapter 6. At a recent doctor visit, the uh, nurse asked my wife if anybody in our home smokes as they just figured out, trying to ascertain whether or not we have a healthy home. And Larissa said no. And Renee piped up and said, no, my dad smokes brisket and pork. So it's, uh, that has nothing to do with our passage this morning. So Galatians chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Uh, just to get a little bit of the context, I'll read all the way through verse 10. And then different speakers will come up and exposit uh, their own portion. And I have this morning the privilege to exposit 3 through 5. So we'll read the whole passage, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Galatians chapter 6, and I'll just start in verse 1 for the, for the sake of continuity. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. with your word open before us. Um, Father, we thank you for this passage and the things that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And we pray that you would teach us from this morning that we would take these, these practical exhortations and see them as uh, just ways we can be living out the life of the Spirit. And just pray that you would help us to understand, to remember, um, and then also to do what your word is calling us to do this morning. Father, thank you, and uh, please bless this time to your glory. Father, I pray for each and every one of the speakers, and I just pray that you would give them clarity. I pray that you would uh, help them to be concise, and I pray that you would help uh, them to exposit, Father, your word uh, faithfully to the glory of your name. Amen. So we're again talking about life in the Spirit here. So at the end of chapter 5, Paul has talked about life in the Spirit as, to, as opposed to life in the flesh. And so he then goes through some specifics in chapter 6, talking about what it looks like to live out this life in the Spirit. And at the end of chapter 5, he mentions conceit. He mentions provoking one another, envying one another, and starts to talk about some of the strife that can exist in the body. Uh, we are believers. We are saved. God has started the work in us. That work is not complete. And so there will continue to be difficulty and sin that impacts the church body. And this may be something that was specific to the Galatians, uh, the way that he mentions being proud, the way he mentions being conceited multiple times. Um, and that may be something that they were specifically struggling with in that church. But if you look back at the fruits of the Spirit, and you think about being proud or conceited, 
right? All of the fruits of the Spirit are opposed by pride and conceit. Think about being loving to one another or being kind or patient. You're going to have a very difficult time doing that if you are proud, if you are conceited. And so Paul brings that up again in chapter 6, verse 3, where I'm starting this morning. He brings out another reason that we ought to avoid pride and conceit. We ought not to think too highly of, of ourselves because in reality, if you think highly of yourself, you are self-deceived. He says in verse 3, If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing. And the reality is that we, all of us, are nothing. So if you think you are something, you are self-deceived. And you can see how this would be easy in a church or be easy in any group of people if we are proud. If we are conceited and you gather with others, if you come to church on a Sunday and you you start engaging with others and trying to be in fellowship with believers as we ought to be, you might start to think to yourself as you get to know other people, "I, I can't believe he thinks like that. Hasn't he read the Bible? Doesn't he understand? Or why does she need help with this again? She should have figured this out by now. You can see where the pride and the conceit can start to bring out these attitudes. Or you might, on the way home, say, well, of course that person sinned again. They played with fire and they got burned and they should have known. And we can forget that we are all in the same boat. The reality is, the reality that Paul mentions here is that you are nothing. You are nothing. Paul says in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And this applies to every single believer in this church and in every church. This completely levels the playing field. You are not better than any other believer in the church. I am not better than any of you. Uh, People we look up to in the church, Pastor Gary who is up here preaching on almost every Sunday, he is not better than any of us. And we are not any better than him. We are all believers because we are saved by grace. Given a gift from the Lord. None of this was intrinsic to us. And so as we try to live life with each other in the church body, we can't be deceived into pride because it is self-deception. We must rather be humble, love, and show the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in chapter 5. But the the balance to this is is in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 6. There is evaluation that does need to happen. We're not to just completely ignore what we are doing, but rather our standards should not be each other. There's a test. There is a comparison to be made, but it's not me comparing myself with you or you with me. But rather, it is the holy standard of God. It is His Word, and that is going to be what evaluates us, evaluates us, especially on the final day, on that day of judgment. We will, as Paul says here, bear our own load. Right before the throne of God. And God will not say, well, did you live up to Pat's life? You know, did you live up to, to Mark's life? Did you live up to Sandy's life? No, he will say, the standard is my son. The standard is the holy word of God. 
measure yourself against that. And so as we do that, and we ought to, as we, as we look at ourselves, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit and we see that growing in us or we see ways it needs to grow, as we continue to learn from the Word of God and see that the old man needs to be put off and the new man needs to be put on, and we see sin still clinging to us and it's hard to get rid of it, as we strive and work, we will realize it is all of grace. Even that work, even that striving, even that progress in becoming like Christ, it is all of grace. And so when Paul speaks here of being able to boast in ourselves, right, he is not giving us another grounds for self-promotion, right, but he's giving us a reason to boast ultimately in Christ. As he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we do that because when we compare ourselves with Christ, we realize we still fall short, and we realize that any progress we're making is because of Christ, and so we cast our crowns at His feet and worship Him and boast in Him because it is all His work. One other thing to mention here as we finish these three verses is that Paul is not advocating here. As, as he talks about boasting in yourself alone, testing your own work, he's not advocating for isolationist Christianity. He's not saying just leave everyone else alone and just worry about yourself because he has just talked about the fruit of the Spirit. He has just talked about if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Right? He has talked about bearing one another's burdens. He has talked about this life lived in the body. And if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, they are all relational. Right? It is a life lived with each other. We are going to disagree with each other about the Word, about what constitutes sin sometimes. We are going to not see things the same way. And the reality is when that happens, one of you is, if two people are disagreeing, one person is right and one person is wrong, or you're both wrong. And so the call here is not to agree perfectly on everything or, and just stay, or disagree but stay away from each other. Rather, the call is to be in each other's lives humbly. Right? To be in each other's lives with grace and with kindness and with the fruit of the Spirit. Understanding that, yes, you will have to answer to the Lord for what you think and how you live. So, so stay as close to the Word of God as you can. But also, when you disagree with someone else, don't look down upon them. Right? Come to them with humility and kindness. Refine each other. Let those sanctifying moments happen. But then do it all knowing that it is all of Christ. It is all of grace. And so you do it humbly with a deep love for your brothers and sisters, pursuing a faithful life with them as the church progresses toward Christ-likeness together. And so that, that's what Paul calls us to in these first three verses, and then we'll move on and progress to verse 6 next. Good afternoon. It's my... Uh pleasure and privilege to get to preach to you on Galatians 6, verse 6. Please follow along with me as I read. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Please pray with me. Lord, you are the instructor of our souls, and apart from you we cannot learn any good thing. 
dwell richly within us, teaching and admonishing that we may be conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. So we're going to jump right into it. Application point one, give me some money. Uh, You can come on up right now. Obviously, I'm joking, but we shouldn't overcomplicate this passage. Paul is giving a, a very simple encouragement that we need to value teaching. And we do this by valuing teachers and rewarding their work. So point number one, teaching is important. We know this very clearly because we have the Bible. It is not just a historical account or narrative, but it is a book of teaching meant to instruct and edify us. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Bible is proof that teaching is important because this is what our God has given us. We also know teaching is important because we don't know things. We are limited human beings. We are not God. And if you have ever not known something, you can benefit from teaching. Worse than that, we think we know things when we're wrong. We live in a fallen world. We are surrounded by sinners, and we are sinners ourselves. And so sometimes we believe things, confident that they are true, and we're dead wrong, and teaching can help us in this. But even worse than that, we believe wrong things to justify our sinfulness. We, apart from the grace of God, love sin, and we will bend and twist reality to support our sinful habits. If you have ever sinned, then teaching is for you. Application point one, know that teaching is important. If we aren't sure and confident about this, then the rest of what I'm going to say is worthless. Point two, teaching is va- teachers are valuable. Very simply, if teaching is important, then those who teach are valuable to us. They spend many hours in preparation, studying, meditating, and praying for our sake and our benefit. In Proverbs 13:14, we learn that teaching is life-giving. It says, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. And teachers are important because they are reflections of who God is. All three persons of the Trinity are described at different points of time as teachers. Application two, value your teachers. This section of Galatians is all about ensuring that the church is healthy and maintains its health. And this verse specifically is here because teachers are important and valuable to the health of the church in our own spiritual walks. The third application and point are wrapped up together. Reward and support their work. If teaching is important and teachers are valuable, then we must see and recognize that value by rewarding and supporting their work. The first way that we can do this is by prayer. 
go before the throne of God on their behalf. Intercede for your teachers. Pray for their studies, that they would be fruitful. And when God answers your prayers, you, the congregation, and the teachers will be blessed. Pray that they would walk in a manner worthy of their calling and position. James writes that teachers will be judged more harshly, and so they should watch out. And it is an especially dangerous thing when teachers fall into sin. Pray that they would be safe from assaults from Satan. The deceiver knows how important teachers are to the church, and so he will assault them to undermine the body. If you want to see the church wither and die, don't pray for your teachers. If you long to see the church full of life and godliness, pray for your teachers. The second way we can reward and support the work of teachers and teaching is by giving our money, our wealth, our finances to this point. It shows us what is important. It shows the world what is important to us. Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you love the teaching of God's word, if you are grateful for the study and preparation of brothers and sisters who work on your behalf, then you will, if God has given you sufficient wealth, graciously give to that work. It also helps make the work happen. Teaching is a lot of work. The preparation takes time and attention. It is better for the church when its teachers can be freed from other concerns to dedicate their time to studying. If you want to see the church suffer and shrink, stop giving to teachers. But if you rejoice at the gospel being presented, at the word being taught, and you long to see it continue and grow, give in accordance with the abundance that God has given you. Another way we can share all good things with those who teach us is by encouraging them. Encourage your teachers. We are humans. We grow weary and discouraged at times. And a good teacher puts a lot of care and energy into what they do. Build them up so that they may run with endurance. And I want to make this clear. I'm not talking about flattery. You don't have to say that they did a great job every time you hear them. But when you are blessed and the Lord leads you, share that with them. And even beyond sharing those things, remind them of truth. Encourage them with scripture because they need it just like you do. And it is from the truth and scripture that we draw our strength and endurance. Another very practical way that you can share all good things with your teachers is books. I myself have been tremendously blessed by people who have donated books to me or recommended good books. And I wouldn't be standing here right now if it wasn't for the teaching and instruction I've received from the ways that people have blessed me with that. Also importantly, 
We need to serve so that teachers have time to teach. There is much work to be done by the church. We are called to love those outside the body. We are called to remember the poor, to visit widows and orphans, to look after the needs of our brothers and sisters, and to give to those who are lacking. We need people to do music, to run soundboard and live stream, to prepare bulletins, and so much more. When you serve in these ways, you help to free teachers up to dedicate their time to the word. In Acts 6, we read about how the apostles set up deacons to take care of these important works of the church so that they would have time to focus on the important work of teaching. And finally, love your teachers. Consider their love and concern for you and consider God's love in sending us good teachers and live out a godly love for them in response. Please pray with me. God, you instruct us out of the richness of your love. I pray that we would be changed by it and that we would always cherish and treasure your instruction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Should have had you preach that before the offering. (laughs) Boy, we messed up an opportunity there. Sorry for the sort of miscommunication up here. I think it's the way I probably worded it um, in, in, the, in the thing. I put the name after in parentheses anyway. Uh, I will be taking verses 7 through 8. Thank you to both my brothers for coming up and sharing and preaching as they did. <clears throat> Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And though these verses are, you know, the little, it's, it's, uh, I believe it was Gary who titled this Proverbs and Galatians because it's a series of somewhat disconnected, uh, lessons, though to an extent they are, even if we were to take what the brother uh, just brought before us, Justin just brought before us, to honor teachers in that way, to make sure that they have the proper remuneration, to make sure they have time, pray. All these things are ways of spiritually sowing. And so there certainly is a connection there. And at the same time, the passage does stand on its own to give us a much broader range of application in so many areas of our lives that I, I wouldn't begin to sort of insult you by thinking I could cover all of that in uh, in a little eight-minute uh, sermon featurette. Let's call this passage the law of agriculture <laughs> for Christian farmers, right? I recently counseled a friend who was once again struggling with alcoholism and the throes of it. In our exchange, I stated very simply, because it's appropriate at this point to do this, either you get sober or you will die. And there's no doubt that is what will happen because this individual has been warned about liver issues and has a relative that died from alcohol. 
And the response from this person was, I'm certainly not God, but I'm also of the belief that death is not my fate anytime soon. And this individual went on to mention not feeling God, but still praying and listening to sermons. So no involvement in any church, sadly. Uh, Very much alone, no support group even. Even getting that sort of minimal communal support. And unfortunately, that individual is planting seeds of destruction and self-deception in a field of death. It isn't that this person doesn't want to stop drinking in a way they do, but that person hasn't stopped drinking or done what's necessary to get to detox or whatever. She's planted a tomato seed in a field and is persuaded that corn will be there at harvest time. The law of agriculture states that you plant a tomato seed and you get a tomato. This cannot change. It never has. God has built planting and harvest into the DNA of every living thing. Way back in Genesis, we see that every fruit bore seed after its own kind. That's what you get. We are Christian farmers, or if you're not a follower of Christ, you're a farmer of another kind, but we're both the farmers. We are constantly seeding and harvesting, or as the text says, sowing and reaping. Sowing is putting seed in the ground. Reaping is coming to get what grows. It's a very basic principle, as fixed as any law of the universe. And yet we can and do act and think in ways that betray this odd notion we all hold to at times that we can plant a tomato and not get a tomato. We're constantly sowing and reaping. In fact, we're always doing one or the other, or or perhaps simultaneously both. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. You are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. It's a great quote. Very well said. And every time we act or think we are doing so, following the choice to think or act in a certain way. We choose what we're going to say. We choose what we're going to read, what we're going to watch, how we're going to respond to somebody, how we're going to spend our leisure time, how we're going to spend our money. And this, in turn, leads into patterns of thoughts and behavior, as Lewis stated so well. There's an old adage or a saying, I don't know its origin, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. This is what Paul's getting at here in the 7th and 8th verses of chapter 6 as we have it in this epistle. Don't be self-deceived, he says. Don't believe a lie. Don't be deceived about what? Don't be deceived about the fact that God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Literally, this means you cannot turn the nose up at God. That word mock means to turn the nose up at. You can't fool God with what you're doing. You can't make a, you can't make a fool of God and the way that you can make a fool of yourself or even others. 
The alcoholic I mentioned is deceived and thinks in some way because she's convinced herself that God can likewise be convinced. That's a dangerous place to be. We can so convince ourselves, as was alluded to, of our position that we're pretty sure that this must be it. And we take a very strong stand on something that's wrong belief. And she's planted a tomato, but she's praying for corn. Because it can be, self-deception, it can be that intense. It can be that deep. That you're planting seed for tomato, but you're praying for corn in the harvest. She can continue to drink, but we'll pray in the meantime. The problem in Galatia with respect to this is the Judaizers, the ones that are going around saying you need to be circumcised. You really, you need to be Jews before, so you can be good Christians. What they're basically saying. You need to encumber yourself to underneath the Mosaic law. But Paul asks early in the letter, are you so foolish? Having to be gone in the spirit, are you made perfect by the flesh? Having begun, circumcision is not going to make you a better Christian. And he says that you're sowing either to the flesh or to the spirit, one of two. You're sowing to the flesh or you're sowing to the spirit. Paul is a deep-thinking Jew. And he's steeped in foundational Old Testament thought. And he uses the term flesh in a variety of ways, as the Old Testament does. I won't go through each, but there's at least six or seven different ways flesh is used in Scripture. In the context, as usual, determines how we should understand that. But here the context is quite clear. Sowing to the flesh is sowing without regard to God's precepts, God's direction, without regard for God's purposes. It is grieving the spirit. It is being carnally minded. It does not mean we have two natures. The Christian does not have two natures. You do not have an old nature and a new nature. We are either old, fallen, broken human, or we are new creation in Christ Jesus. We are in Adam, or we are in Christ. We are not in both. Because, however, our transformation is not yet complete and won't be until Jesus returns, we're still given at times to thoughts and actions that have become habits and patterns. It's a spiritual battle, as Paul has already mentioned in this letter. It's not a precise analogy, but one is either married or not. When you're married, you no longer are to live like a bachelor (laughs) or a bachelorette. Though at times, you may still act that way. Sowing to the flesh, then, as a born from above follower of Jesus, would be acting in a way contrary to what God has revealed. It is to act contrary to the Spirit's leading, Jesus' example, and the apostolic teaching. It is, in a word, disobedience. When we do this, we smell like death, metaphorically speaking. And each of us knows exactly what this is in our life. You will reap corruption, it says, if you, he who sows to the flesh, she who sows to the flesh, will from the flesh, right, you're sowing in a particular field, so from that field, you're sowing a particular seed, so by that seed, you will get corruption. Because the flesh seed can only produce corrupt harvest. No maybes and no exceptions. You entertain a temptation of any kind that is contrary to the spirit, you will get rotten fruit. And be reminded again, you and I are constantly sowing seed. What is the seed and what is the condition of the field? Now, walking in the spirit is fairly simple to understand. 
not so easy to do, you are following Jesus when you're walking in the Spirit. You are gladly obeying, not out of duty, but out of desire. You are sowing holy sealed, holy seed in a field of holiness, and you will reap eternal life. You are living a life of Christ-imaging love for God and for others. You are worshiping, praying, fellowshipping, spending time talking with others about the things of the Lord. You're sharing, you're living in the way. This is the way. It's what Paul says in chapter 5. Walking in the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. Always he describes. If we turn our life here, let's not be confused. This is one of those passages that you can get a little tripped up on. When he says that if you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap eternal life. Don't want that to sound like some sort of a reward system or works-based salvation. We must remember that eternal life is not simply number of it's simply quantity. It is life in the eternal God. <laughs> what quality of life can a person have when that person is united to the eternal God? The never beginning, never ending, death has no power over anymore God. That's us in him. Free from contamination of death. And so what? <laughs> so what? Both... Both, sowing to, the, sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit, both are very intentional, both are very deliberate. Farming is hard labor, whether you're sowing good seed or bad seed. Harvesting good seed or bad seed, it is, it is hard labor. So it's not as if you get to, you know, sort of escape the difficulty of the one by choosing the other. You either work hard to smell like garbage and death and look and act like a stubborn, godless jerk in your marriage, at work, or other relationships... Or you work hard to walk on the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to obey the Spirit. You have the capacity in Christ to do this. Repentance is fertilizer and water. Repentance is digging up the wrong seed and planting the right one. Repentance is changing fields. You sow to the flesh long enough, and you reap the habit of poor sowing. You sow to the Spirit, and you'll reap the habit of good sowing. One becomes the other. Again, seed according to its own kind. Sadly, one of the things, one of the uh, things that happens as we reap is we just become poor sowers, and that is the reaping of the sowing you did to begin with. If you read this, you will also realize that you have to become sort of your own fruit inspector. Okay? You need to look at Look at the harvest in your life. What is the harvest that you call parenting? What is the harvest that you call marriage? What is the harvest that you call work? What is the harvest that you call any of these things? Look at that harvest. And if that is a rich, abundant harvest, give thanks to God for it and keep going. But if there's, if there's, if there's rot, and that comes out in relational ways, if there is rot, then you can be sure that bad seed was sown somewhere. And you better dig up. And you better do something about it. And all this stuff is so relational, right? And all the relationships that we have. We can look at that. And we don't, we don't have to go too far. You can also come to Sunday school class and learn to tell people that their garden groweth not well. By the means of exhortation 
admonition, rebuke, and encouragement. Now, if you're not in Christ, you cannot produce true godly spiritual fruit. Your good works, if there be any, may look like healthy fruit at first, but God is not mocked. It will turn to maggoty brown putrefaction very quickly, for it cannot remain. Ask Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, to transplant you in his garden, that you may produce fruit in keeping with his kind. Amen. Morning. Come to verse 9. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The Lord Jesus, in bearing our weaknesses, bids us come unto him and become his yoke fellows. And being thus joined to him, we become each other's burden bearers. In our verse, we see an admonishment, a promise, an appointed season, and conditions necessary in which his promise is to be fulfilled and blessings bestowed. The target audience is, of course, the Galatian church, and by extension, us. We know that in the sovereignty of God, not one word of his will ever fall to the ground, not one promise left unfulfilled. Nevertheless, there remains a responsibility for us as individual believers to do good and in our good doing to not lose heart. There is an implicit reminder that the Christian life is not to be lightly undertaken, nor is it a passive waiting for God to do what he has expressly and explicitly commanded us to do. We have seen the admonishment delineated in the preceding verses in what the Apostle James calls the royal law, restoring those who have been overtaken in a fault as fellow sinners saved by grace, bearing one another's burdens as fellow pilgrims and sojourners through the wilderness of this world, examining our own work that it may be seen to be genuine, approved by God and an acceptable cause for rejoicing, and never at the expense of or in comparison to others sharing all good things with those whose responsibility it is to teach, that they need not bear unduly the excess burden of waiting on tables when Christ has so equipped his body with diversities of gifts tending to her edification. These responsibilities Christ has given us to fulfill. Verse 9, in coming to the admonishment, let us. Paul does not set himself apart in distinction from the Galatians, and that which he enjoins as one exempt due to his office as an apostle, but as a co-laborer and burden-bearer alongside them, the Holy Ghost speaking in and through him, that true companion and friend that sticks closer than a brother. Not be weary, because the way is easy that leads to destruction, that seems right to a man, but weariness is the portion of those who strive as in agony, Luke 13:24, to enter in at the straight gate. For this reason, there is no promise restated to those who sow unto the flesh and thereby reap corruption, for they have their reward. 
But for those who sow unto the Spirit, the promise is declared, they shall reap life everlasting. We shall reap if we faint not. Here we come to the conditions of the promise. If we faint not in our well-doing, the works of love aforementioned, self-denial, loving God, loving our neighbor as ourselves. The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Proverbs 4.18 In all labor there is increase. In our perseverance and well-doing, we go from strength to strength. And in what we perceive as paradox, we increase in our decreasing. We live unto him in our dying to self. In our labors we rest. In our running strenuously, we are carried along as upon eagles' wings. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 1 Corinthians 2.6 In due season we shall reap. There is an appointed season of harvest reaping for the laborer, just as there is a time appointed in his sovereign providence for everything under heaven. As he made the moon to mark the seasons, so made he the seasons to mark our activities under heaven, appointing the bounds of our habitation. Far from being a proof text to support fatalistic determinism, it reminds us rather of the certainty of our master's return. He has fixed a day that is literally set in stone in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, Acts 17.31. Believers' predestination in Christ renders the promise of their reaping life everlasting not a mere possibility, but a fixed certainty. As certain as was his resurrection from the dead at the appointed time, so was ours, when he utters his voice, and all that are in the graves shall hear, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John five, twenty-eight through 29 He will put in his sickle and gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire and that at the end of the age in due season. We shall reap if we faint not. Eternal life is irrevocable, yet one of the primary ways in which it is manifested is in that we do not fall away, but rather press on in the faith. Assurance of salvation is sweet to the soul and should be sought, but in many cases it is of the Lord's mercies that we are given a messenger of Satan, to buffet us, lest we be exalted above measure. That we are not allowed to possess absolute scientific precision as to our certainty that we will not fall away because of the strength of our faith, our accomplishments, or good heredity, and so forget, my grace is sufficient for you. Or become complacent and say in our hearts as that servant, My Lord delayeth his coming, and begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken. Luke 12.45 It could be said that a healthy measure of uncertainty renders the necessity of faith and perseverance therein meaningful, and that the want and the discomfort which God allows us to undergo are a means of keeping us in a state of dependence on his comfort and provision. 
Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. Matthew 5, 6. But what is this fainting, this losing heart, and this giving up to which Paul refers? In our context, it is a falling from grace. Galatians 5, verse 4. It is a returning to the law to become a debtor thereunto. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Seeking justification before God by means of law-keeping, as we have seen, is an accursed enterprise. Chapter 3, verse 10. Conversely, the just shall live by faith. Verse 11 of chapter 3. Continue in this then. My friends, keep pressing on, though beset round about by enemies which would compel you to be circumcised, both within the church and without. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. Keep sowing unto the Spirit by loving your neighbor, restoring fallen brethren, bearing one another's burdens, allowing God to continue to refine and purify you as gold in a furnace, though heated seven times, dying daily to sin and self as we make Christ preeminent in every part of our lives. Remember, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ in order that we may be justified by faith. It is good if used lawfully, showing us our need of the Savior, driving us to him time and again thereafter. But beware of those who would say to you in answering the question of how we can be made right with God, Christ and. Always remember, his coming will not tarry, but is certain as the stone which the angel rolled away. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So we've come to the last verse, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, because I have been chosen to ride the caboose on the team. I'm going to try to do the very best I can to make this clear and efficient. There is one word in this 23-word verse that jumps out, at least it does to me, and that's the word good. Good is used 123 times in Scripture, and 23 of those times it's to do good. And what I'd like to do is to speak to doing good with three points. The first is to do good does not mean you be good. It does not make you good. This is the gospel, and I delight any time I have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel But in this situation, as was the concluding words of Paul to the Galatians, it's not about works. We don't get to heaven because we do good. It is because of Christ's sufficiency for us. So that's the first point. The second point is, if we understand that works aren't to get us to heaven, then what are they for? What's what's the motive to do good works? I'll touch on that. And then the third point is if we come to the place where we decided, okay, I'm going to do some good works, what are good works? How do we define what are good works? Okay, so let me go back to the first point. The first point has to do with doing good does not 
make you good. And it certainly does not make you good enough, perfect, to get to heaven. I came out of the Catholic faith. How many of you came out of the Catholic faith? Yeah, I figured there would be a lot. Okay? This is so clear for a Catholic who's come to faith in Christ. You ask a Catholic, why did Christ die? To pay for my sins. You ask a Catholic, what do you have to do to get to heaven? I have to get baptized. I have to first communion, uh, confirmation, marriage, extreme unction. I have to give, pray, fast. I have to light candles. I have to say rose. I have to do works, faith plus works. But when you come out of that faith, religion, and see the truth of the gospel, that truth that Paul presented initially to the Galatians that they backed away from, when you see that great truth, then it sticks with you. It's a disconnect. It's a funny thing. It's two separate paths. And I want to direct you out of Galatians quickly into Matthew 19, because in Matthew 19, we have... Jesus confronted by the rich young man. And the conversation that they have is kind of... The rich young man doesn't get it. It has to do with doing works or being perfect. So let me just read this for you. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Good works. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And one interpretation of this is just he was proud and didn't want to give up his possessions. But if you look into it in terms of doing good, Christ put it on him. Okay, You you, you kept five of the Ten Commandments. And you kept that large commandment from Leviticus 19, love your enemies as yourself. But I got another one. Did you give everything that you have to the poor? Or were you proud today? Or were you angry today? Or whatever. Christ could have kept going and going that you don't have enough. Regardless of your good works, They're not perfect. You're not perfect. Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, be therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we see in this first examination of good when Paul is telling um, the Galatians to um, do good, he's not telling them to do good in the sense of it's for you getting to heaven. He's telling them to do good because of other motives. So what could be that other motive? Why would you do good um, if it's not for the purpose of going to heaven? And scripture tells us that uh, 
Paul writes to the Corinthians, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light shine before men that if they see your good deeds, they will praise your Father in heaven. There is a motive higher than doing good works to solve my problem, to satisfy my desires. It's to serve him. It's to serve him. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and it's not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man will boast. God knows that if we do it on our own, in our pride, we are going to boast about, look at me, stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum, what a good boy am I, right? We, that's our nature, that's our nature, but that's not why we do good works, It's not going to work us into heaven. It's not going to work us into favor with our creator. There's a better and higher purpose, and that is to praise God and to bring him glory. So if we come to that point and decide, okay, I'm going to praise God and bring him glory by doing good works, what do we do? A lot of times in Scripture, we can read and we go right on and we don't stop, and there ought to be speed bumps in Scripture where we... We stop and chew on a word, and the word good ought to be digested. What is good? Now, we have a sense of what is good. It's because we've basically all grown up in a Western civilization. A Judeo-Christian ethic has been in us almost to the point we could say it's part of our DNA. It's what we know. It's what we understand. I could say, look, picture in your mind a one-year-old baby, and you throw that baby into the wood chipper. Is that good? It's ghastly. We won't go down the rabbit trail of abortion, but that's ghastly, and we know in our culture that's not good. If, if for, for giggles I go around and I poke you in the eye as hard as I can, is that good? No, we know that's not good because we should do to others as we would have them do to us. We have a Judeo-Christian ethic. <laughs> I'd stay away from Brian. Uh, we'd, we'd have a, we have a Judeo-Christian ethic, and it's part of what we've grown up with. When Jesus was talking to the rich young man, he answered with five of the ten commandments, and he answered with Leviticus 19.18, which is that general rule, love your neighbor as yourself. He had a Judeo-ethic. That's what he grew up with. That's what framed for him good. Well, we have a Judeo-Christian ethic because we're 2,000 years on this side of the cross. And Christ has told us the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This, in a sense, rounds out for us what is good. We can easily define in our lives what is good. When we are told, go out and do good works, we have some guardrails on the sides of our road to travel. There's also wording that Paul has given to the Galatians in uh, Galatians 5.13, uh, or yes, 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And he's also said down in 6, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We can do those things, and those will constitute for us the good which we ought to do. Paul was writing to the Galatians, 
and saying we can do those things for the glory of God, but don't do those things for your salvation. Don't fall back into the law. You were once in bondage. Now you're free. Be free. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, let's live freely in Christ. Let's do good. And a final thought as a deacon. We are compelled by the marching order to serve. And so we can look to those in the family of faith. We can look to you all with a heart to serve you, to do good to you. And if we do good to each other, we will have an impact in this community. We will be light in this community and salt in this community. We will live in this community like no others, as Christian brothers and sisters. And so our good deeds will, will reflect and direct people to go to Christ. So I would say in closing, let us do good and bring glory to God. Okay, with that then, let's pray, and we'll have uh, the gospel team of the Leos come forward <laughs> and uh, get prepared to lead us musically.